Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. In our last lesson, we were examining the account of Paul's conversion, which I pointed out is normal by God's standard of normal. I'm not saying that the circumstances that led to his salvation was normal, because that was unique to Paul's story, just as all true followers of Jesus have their own story on how they came to Christ. What I mean by normal is that there's only one kind of salvation, and for anyone to be genuinely saved, they must come to Christ by way of the cross. Nobody can know God's salvation who hasn't repented of their sin and experienced the transforming power of divine grace that gives new life. And I'm not saying that Paul's calling as an apostle was normal since he had a divine call upon his life that was unique to him, just as every true follower of Jesus has a divine call upon their life. What was normal about Paul's conversion is the life that came out of his salvation. Since there's only one kind of disciple, and every disciple is required to follow Jesus, love him supremely, and obey his every command. For a person to be a follower of Messiah, they must leave all to follow him and pick up their cross, and this is still the case today. Yet people want to define their own terms of discipleship as if they had a say in the matter, which they absolutely do not. The Lord himself defines what it means to be one of his followers, and his standard isn't open for negotiation by anyone. After the account of Paul's conversion, the narrative turns its focus upon Peter, and at the end of Acts chapter 9, there are two events that happened while Peter took a preaching tour after the persecution ended. The first we looked at in our last lesson, and this was about the healing of Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. This healing caused such a stir that we read in verse 35, all those who lived in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Here's the power of divine healing and the tremendous influence it can have in bringing the loss to salvation. We will see similar results happen with the second account, and this one we will begin looking at right now. In verses 36 through 43, we are given the account of Tabitha being raised from the dead. Verses 36 and 37 reveal the opening context of the story. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which, when translated, is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time she became sick and died, and her body was washed in place in an upstairs room. Joppa was the principal Mediterranean seaport for Palestine. It was about 30 miles south of Caesarea and 45 miles north of Jerusalem. The town was estimated to have around 4,000 inhabitants. Tabitha's name is more Syriac than Hebrew, while Dorcas is a Greek name. We aren't told how Tabitha converted to Christ. We are merely told that she was a disciple. She was a godly, compassionate woman that spent her life in performing acts of kindness towards others and those in need. She had gotten sick and died from that sickness, and her body was prepared for burial. It's important to remember that she was dead, and that everyone in that house knew this was the case. In verse 38, we are told that Lydia was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydia, they sent two men and urged him, Please come at once. Given that culture and environment, they normally didn't wait a long time before burying the dead. This tells us that the decision to send for Peter was made shortly after her death. Two men were sent to Peter to urge him to come right away. Verse 39 tells us that Peter went with them, and when he had arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. 
All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas made while she was still with them. Taking the dead into an upper room for a brief time of mourning was common in that day. They immediately took Peter up to the room where Tabitha was prepared for burial, and the room was filled with women mourning their loss. Luke made the point that the women mourners were widows, or at least the majority of them were, and this may indicate the love and compassion Tabitha showed to widows of that city. It seems like the women thought that Peter came to view Tabitha as a show of respect for the dead woman. This gave them the opportunity to show Peter all the wonderful things that she had made for them. Then in verses 40 and 41, we are told that Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. Peter didn't send them out of the room because he was being unfeeling to their pain, but because they were filled with unbelief, and that would make it harder for Peter to lay hold of the promises of God by faith. Unbelief creates a spiritual atmosphere that stifles faith. Peter was practicing another lesson from the Master and put all the unbelieving people out of the room. I would imagine that some of the women were angry over this, but it had to be done so that Peter could operate in faith. We aren't told how long Peter prayed until he commanded Tabitha to rise, but it was long enough for faith to rise up in Peter to be able to believe for the miracle to happen. We must approach divine healing with the faith to believe that every person will be healed. Otherwise, we will pray with unbelief and never see anyone healed. One miracle isn't any harder for God to do than another. Though for us, the more impossible a miracle seems, the more challenging it will be for us to believe the promises of God. Great faith must face great obstacles to see God perform great miracles. For those in bondage to unbelief, even the smallest need can be insurmountable because they leave no room for faith, no room for the miraculous. In essence, they have cut out of their Bibles the supernatural. And I'm sorry to say there's all kinds of people that claim to be Christian that do this. Like the people of Nazareth, they refuse to believe, and their unbelief keeps them from seeing God do the miraculous. One of the worst expressions of unbelief is when people twist the Word of God so that they can justify their unbelief. What a vicious trap! They refuse to believe the promises of God as laid out in the Word of God and distort the Word to continue in their unbelief. Then they condemn anyone who chooses to believe in the promises of divine healing as outlined in God's Word. In this way, they justify their unbelief and refuse to see how evil is their unbelief as a habitual practice of sin. I don't deny that there is certainly some abuse in the teaching of divine healing, but abuse doesn't nullify the truth in the least. Our responsibility is to believe the truth of God's Word, the full gospel, not three-quarters of it, and then strive to live it out to the best of our ability. Only by faith did Peter know that Tabitha would come back to life. Everything in the natural said otherwise, along with the voices of people and even devils. Faith must silence the voices of unbelief to lay hold of the promises of God. As long as we listen to all the voices of doubt and unbelief, we will not gain the promises of God that are contingent upon the necessity of faith. When faith reached the height to lay hold of God's promise, then Peter gave a command of faith. Tabitha, get up. What happened next? She opened her eyes and seeing Peter sat up. Faith works. 
It's wonderful when we believe the promises of God and then see them unfold right before our eyes. What are we to do when we strive to believe, yet don't see promises fulfilled? We continue to believe, and this faith will always produce action, which means we must continue to believe the promises of God. When we finally reach the place of faith and the miracles begin to happen before our eyes, we have just grown in faith so that we might believe God for even greater things. If we refuse to step out in faith and pray for miracles, then we are sure to get what we're expecting, which is absolutely nothing. Well, those who refuse to believe do get something besides nothing. They do get a lot of happy devils that rejoice over killing people's faith. And oh yeah, then there's this point. They get something else. That's God's displeasure over their unbelief. It's not only that the Lord raised Tabitha from the dead, but the Lord healed the very illness that produced her death in the first place. Peter then took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and widows and presented her to them alive. There was some serious joy in that house. Morning had given away to the joy of the Lord at the victory he gave the saints on that day. Verse 42 tells us the influence of this miracle. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. This is the second time in chapter 9 that we have absolute proof that miracles open the closed minds of many people so that they can see Jesus and come to saving faith. We see more people saved in the book of Acts through miracles of one sort or another than we do without them. That's an astounding truth. With this in mind, we can see why hell wants the truth of divine healing and the miraculous kept from the church and why devils peddle the false doctrine that the age of miracles is over. A powerless church is a fruitless church. Now there's some strong meat to chew on for a while. It takes the supernatural power of God working through a faith-filled church and faith-filled saints to produce the miracles of winning souls to Jesus. We don't need less supernatural power in the church today or less of the Holy Spirit, but more of Him and more divine power to see signs and wonders for the glory of God and the salvation of the lost. We desperately need this power in the church of today and in each of our lives. We need Holy Spirit power in the life of the American church that, by and large, has given over to unbelief, individualism, and rationalism, all of which are hostile to the biblical faith. Those three works of the flesh breeds unbelief as fast as cockroaches breed in slums, and they spread their plague of doubt and apostasy as well. Turning to verse 43, we find a transition between the miracles the Lord was using Peter to perform and the major event of chapter 10. The importance of this chapter can't be overstated. The Gentile church wouldn't be in existence today if it wasn't for what the Lord did in this event. The chapter is all about how the Lord opened the door of salvation to the Gentiles to come to Christ without first having to become Jewish in faith. Prior to this event, for a Gentile to become a follower of Messiah, he would have to convert to Judaism and hold to the requirements of the Mosaic Law. Beginning with verse 1, we are told that Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. This is actually a very interesting verse and reveals something that the Lord was doing in Peter's life to prepare him for the earth-shaking event of chapter 10. To be a tanner was considered an unclean occupation, not just by the Jews, but by many people groups as well. For the Jews, they thought tanners were in a perpetual state of uncleanness because they had contact with dead animals that made them unclean. 
Tanners could have just bought the hides from others and not necessarily done the butchering of the animals themselves. I have only done some basic study on how people become unclean through contact with a dead person or animal, for it's very complicated. When Jews came in contact with a dead person, they became unclean, and this was all the more severe if the person was a priest, and especially for the high priest. Yet for priests, when they kill sacrificial animals, they aren't made unclean by their contact with a dead animal. The tabernacle roof was made of animal skins of sea cows, and the tabernacle certainly wasn't an unclean dwelling. Nor were the Levites made unclean who were in charge of setting up, tearing down, and transporting the tabernacle that used animal skins in its structure. Then you have all the people who use cowhide for their sandals, armor, and other necessary items. These didn't make people unclean. When people prepared the Passover lamb, they weren't declared unclean by contact with a dead animal, nor was this the case with clean animals that were used for food. It seems obvious that there are some ways contact with what was dead made people unclean, while in other ways it didn't defile them. Nonetheless, tanners were thought to be unclean through their contact with the skins of dead animals, though I can't think of a verse that states this to be the case. Because of the negative view people had of tanners, they were forced to live away from the people, and we see this in that Simon the Tanner lived by the sea. The fact that Peter lodged with the tanner reveals three important points. First, that Simon the tanner was Jewish, for Jews were forbidden to stay with Gentiles. We see in this account that Peter acted very differently when going into a home of Gentiles after he had his vision. Second, that the tanner had probably become a follower of Messiah, and that's why Peter was staying with him. And third, for Peter to stay in the home of a tanner reveals that he was having a higher regard for the man than for the Mosaic law or what the people thought about the man. It's obvious that the legalism of the Mosaic law was losing its hold on Peter, and this was very important to what we will see in chapter 10. The Lord was going to use this time of living with the tanner and away from the religious pressures of Jerusalem to open the door for salvation to come to the Gentiles. This event may not have happened if Peter was still in Jerusalem because the strong influence of the Mosaic law had still much of a hold upon the infant church. Moving on to chapter 10, the context of this story is laid out in verses 1 and 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. This happened in Caesarea, which is by the Mediterranean Sea and had a residence for the Roman proconsul. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, which means that he had charge of a century of soldiers, which was a hundred men. There were other categories of centurions, but it's of little value to go into their various rankings. Luke makes an important point, though, by stating that he was part of the Italian regiment. A regiment is larger than a century and smaller than a legion. That they were Italian means that they were on special assignment from Rome, possibly to guard the proconsul and his residence. Cornelius held a very prestigious position. The point that he was devout and God-fearing teaches us that he worshipped the God of Israel, but wasn't formally added to the Jewish faith through circumcision. Circumcision may have been looked down upon by the Romans, so Cornelius may have avoided the outward expression of being in covenant with Abraham's God. At the very least, he had abandoned the idolatry of Greece and Rome to worship the one true God, and this was very radical for him. 
His faith wasn't mere lip service, but was expressed in kindness towards Israel and compassion towards the needs of others. The depth of his piety is revealed in that he regularly prayed and led his home in the worship of the Lord. Due to the fact that he was devout and feared God, we are told in verse 3, One day at about three in the afternoon he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius? We aren't told what Cornelius was doing at 3 p.m., but since that was the time of the evening sacrifice in Jerusalem, it may be that he was in prayer. At the very least, he was in a place that was conducive to having a vision. A vision is an experience that happens when a person is awake and sees a divine message or messenger that has important instructions that need to be obeyed or are prophetic in nature. Dreams are similar, but these happen while people are sleeping. In the vision, an angel came to him with a clear message. The angel began by calling out Cornelius, and this was to get his attention and to show that the message was personally for him. Then in verse 4, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a meaningful offering before God. My guess is that Cornelius wasn't only seeing a vision, but he was also experiencing the tangible presence of God. In other words, he was experiencing the Holy Spirit. Somehow the soldier knew that it was an angel that came to him, and he was staring at the heavenly being in fear. To be in the grip of fear is saying quite a bit for a centurion. Soldiers that become centurions do so by standing out in battle and by knowing how to take and give orders. As a centurion, Cornelius had to be in the front lines of battle with his men, giving them the necessary commands as they rushed into battle. This angel probably filled Cornelius with more fear than he had ever felt in the heat of battle. Yet as a man who knew how to take orders, he said, What is it, Lord? knowing that a command was getting ready to be given to him. Yet before the angel delivered his message, he has some words of commendation to Cornelius, who knew how to be faithful and how to follow orders to the smallest detail. The angel answered the centurion, saying, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. The Lord not only sees what every person does, whether in secret or in public, but he knows the motives behind those actions. The Lord knew that the centurion prayed out of a pure heart of wanting to know God and gave to the needy out of genuine compassion, and the Lord saw these acts and was moved by them. Cornelius wanted to know and serve God, but before he ever sought after God, God had sought after him and drew his heart to bring the man to himself. Since Cornelius really wanted to know God, the Lord made sure that he came to saving faith. This is another New Testament account where a Gentile is praised by God. Jesus praised another centurion for having great faith and a Canaanite woman for her great faith. Here's another Gentile being praised by God, but this time it's not because of the great faith, but because of the great love and devotion he had for God. This man's devout life of prayer and compassion towards the needy won God's ear so that he had respect unto the man's prayer. This is a very important point. The Lord responds to those with a pure heart who passionately seek after Him and refuse to give up even when times get hard. It's easy to pray and seek God when life is easy, but what do we do when life gets hard, when everything is going wrong and it appears that God isn't answering our prayers? 
This is where the quality of people's character and heart is revealed. And it's in these difficult times that the Lord will reveal himself to those who truly want him. There's a reason why prayer and gifts to the poor was written in this order. If the order would have been reversed, then the man would have had just another works-based religion. But since prayer came first, it shows that he was seeking after God and that his good works came out of that relationship. And this is a very important distinction. Our relationship with Jesus must always be first and foremost. It must be the principal thing, the greatest thing. It must be what we desire more than anything else in all of life and all of the world. When this is the case, then everything we do comes out of our relationship with God and living near to the Savior. And the point that his prayers and alms has come up to God as a memorial speaks of a sacrifice that was well-pleasing to God. It was acceptable to him. It's like what we read in Revelation chapter 8, verse 4. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand as a fragrant offering that was pleasing to God. The angel gave further instructions in verses 5 and 6. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. Like I said earlier, Cornelius knew how to give and take orders as a soldier, who had gone through the ranks to gain the position of a centurion in the Italian regiment. When the angel gave him those orders after proving that he was sent by God, the soldier believed and obeyed the command immediately. Cornelius was told to send to Joppa, some 30 miles away, for Simon, who is also called Peter. He was staying with Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. Since they didn't have street addresses in those days like we do today, these instructions were about as accurate as could be given. There would only be one Simon, who was a Tanner, that lived outside of Joppa by the sea. The messengers would only need to ask some locals a few questions, and they would easily find the place. The next thing that happened is found in verses 7 and 8. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. By faith, Cornelius obeyed the angel's command and sent out his messengers. Here's another account of quick obedience, and this is something that's very important to God. More times than I can count, People have given me excuses why they don't quickly obey God, and most often they try to cloak their rebelliousness in worthless excuses that sound noble. But rebellion against God is never noble, it's never good, and it never produces any good. It's an absolute fact that rebellion against God produces sorrow in this life and eternal sorrow in the next. Disobedience keeps people from becoming mighty men and women of God. It keeps them in defeat and weighs them down with worldliness and compromise. Rebellion and disobedience are the same thing, and when they are at work in the lives of parents or grandparents, they breed that rebellion in their children. Disobedience not only is a plague to family and friends, but it disgraces Christ before a world that's watching to see if what we have is real. The implications of rebellion are worse than we understand, but on the flip side, Obedience has far-reaching effects that can change eternity because God responds with good to those who obey Him. We have already seen that Cornelius was a God-fearing man, and now we see another character trait that was going to bring him closer to God. As a centurion, he had to learn how to quickly obey his superiors without complaint or question, and this must be part of the reason why he rose in the ranks of the Roman army. The quick obedience he learned in the military was transferred to his relationship with God, and this was a very good thing. 
he immediately sent out two trusted servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, probably to protect the servants and make the way easier. What does it mean that the soldier Cornelius sent out was devout? A simple answer on the soldier being devout centers upon the point that Cornelius was devout and God-fearing and that he instructed his family in divine truths. It's reasonable to maintain that he also taught these truths to his servants and military attendants. There's also the possibility that he taught the soldiers under his command moral and spiritual truths to help govern them. This wasn't unheard of among the Roman military of that era, and to do such a thing wasn't considered a disgraceful act for a military officer. Scene two of this wonderful drama begins to unfold with Peter at Simon the Tanner's house. Verse 9 states, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Here's another expression of how prayer was central to the life of the primitive church. We aren't told why Peter went to the roof of Simon's home to pray, but I would venture to say that the Holy Spirit was directing him, though he may not have understood it at the time. It was common for the roof of houses to be an extension of the family's living quarters. They would erect tent-like coverings on the roof, which would be cooler than in the hot house, and this would be all the more true with a home by the sea. In verse 10, Peter became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. How many times we had a food dream after eating too much late at night or being very hungry when going to bed? Though Peter was hungry, the vision he had was God-given, not hunger-induced. Then in verses 11 through 13, we are told the vision. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. This vision may not seem like much to us, but it was very radical for Peter. On this sheet lowered from heaven were all sorts of animals, ones that were clean, which the Jews were allowed to eat, and ones that were unclean, which they were forbidden to eat. That the sheet came down from heaven reveals that this sheet was coming from God. The command to kill and eat was revealing God's will for Peter to eat what was declared in the Mosaic law as unclean. Peter was disturbed by this, which is understandable, and replied in verse 14, Surely not, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. In good Jewish form, Peter had never eaten food that was forbidden by God, for such a thought was repulsive to him. In verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The implications of this are great and far-reaching and would be very disturbing to Peter. The Lord was using dietary laws to teach a spiritual truth that needed to break into the Jewish church. The Mosaic law mustn't define the Gentile church. People wouldn't need to convert to Judaism before becoming a follower of Messiah. Whatever God makes clean is truly clean, whether it's the food we eat or a sinner coming to Christ, whether he's Jew or Gentile. That the Lord takes repentant sinners, be they Jew or Gentile, and turns them into saints is radical and revolutionary. The Mosaic law couldn't make people holy. Only the blood of Jesus can do this. The Jewish church was missing this all-important point by continuing to cling to the Mosaic law. If they continued in that direction, then their entire faith might have been lost to legalism. This vision was radical in what it was teaching and earth-shaking for the primitive church. The importance of this is so great, verse 16 tells us that this happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. 
That this vision was repeated three times gives tremendous emphasis to the message that whatever God makes clean is truly clean, and this is integral to the New Testament faith, where we become new creatures in Christ. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Come drink your fill Let healing walk